Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, a product of Talent 409. I'm your host, Colin Cernelia. Go to talent409.com to see how we can help your team or organization with their leadership and culture development. On each episode of the pod, we'll bring you conversations with people that display the seven pillars of dynamic leadership. Someone who possesses those seven pillars has courage, driving accountability, integrity, grit, great communication skills, a high level of emotional intelligence, and they can motivate others. Have questions for me or a guest? Email colin, C-O-L-I-N, at talent409.com. And let's chat. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Radio.com, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, please take a minute and on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review. Help us find other dynamic leaders and help dynamic leaders find us. Okay, on to my featured episode today with my guest, Sarah Hayfley. Sarah is a graduate student and volunteer softball coach at Penn State. She played softball at Seton Hall University and is back in school for an educational leadership program where she focuses on the leadership role coaches have in affecting the holistic growth of players. We get into all of that. This is a super informative talk. So let's not wait any longer. Here is my conversation with Sarah Hayfley. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, my guest on the line is Sarah Hayfley. Sarah, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited for a great conversation, you know, throughout this session. I'm glad to hear your excitement. It's always great. I know I say that anytime someone says they're excited, but it really is great. Just week after week, I do this and sometimes it can seem a little monotonous. So when guests come on and they say they're excited for the first time, it's your first time. It's not my first time, but I try to make it that experience every time. So let's dive right into this conversation before we get too far away down that rabbit hole. And I want to give you an opportunity to give the listening audience, tell them a little bit about yourself. So please tell us, who are you? Well, I'm Sarah Hayfley. I am currently the volunteer coach here at Penn State University. Um, And while I've been here, this is my third season. Uh, While I've been here, I've been working on my master's Right now, um, my and my master's is in educational leadership. That's the the department that I'm getting my master's from. But I'm sort of focusing on not sort of actually focusing on uh, athletic leadership and what effective leadership looks like within the athletic space. Um, so that's sort of where my area of concentration is. Very cool. So we're gonna dive back into that and get a little bit more background into why specifically athletics. And I think some of this talk right here is going to help a little bit, but you obviously grew up playing athletics. You played four years of softball at Seton Hall University. Tell us a little bit about your athletic experience growing up. Uh, From the time that I was born, I think my parents put a ball in my hands or (laughs) my feet. I mean, I can't remember a day without being involved in athletics. And, you know, my dad, um, he really was responsible for introducing all of his kids. I, I'm one of five girls, so I have a lot of sisters. Um, wow. But he was he was responsible for introducing all of us to sports because he valued sports so much. I mean, he, he played Villanova. Uh, he played football at, at Villanova, so he's always, you know, been passionate about that. So, you know, I played 
everything. I think the list of sports that I haven't played is a lot shorter than the list of sports that I have played. Okay. I mean, I've played everything from, you know, ice hockey to gymnastics and everything in between, which really added a lot of value to my life. And not only just from like a social standpoint, but also from like a physical standpoint. And it's just brought me so much joy and passion and being able to express myself physically was sort of my first introduction to being expressive. Uh, So it really impacted my life a lot. I've learned a lot of life lessons, you know, within leadership um, and beyond. Uh, And it's just been a really important part of my life. Sure. And I think you bring up a really important aspect that I don't know that I talk about enough with former athletes, but just that sense of identity. A lot of times what we end up talking about is the lack of identity that you have when you're done playing sports. But there's also that really important aspect of the identity and the confidence that you build on an athletic field in competition, where for me personally, that's where I felt the most comfortable growing up, where and you know, you're supposed to push yourself out of your comfort zone and they tell you all this as you're getting older and into college and everything. So maybe some of it is counterintuitive, but I think there's also something to be said about when you're 12, 13 years old trying to figure it out and you set between the, the white lines for you and I, I played baseball and there's just that comfort and that confidence that bleeds from that. And I think that's a really important aspect that you brought up. And I want to highlight that because like I said, I don't think we talk about it enough and I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on it as far as how it impacted you. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a really great point that we don't talk about the importance of self-identifying within a space and whether it's athletics or anything else, it's that's super important when it, when you're talking from like a clinical standpoint of like motivation and passion and finding out what you're good at and what you're not good at and why you want to do what what you're choosing to do but yeah I mean going off what what you just said about feeling comfortable within the space in which you identify you know now we're getting into the realm of like sense of belonging and community and like being fully expressed within the space that you know or the context that that you're in and um I think for kids a lot of the times people talk about, you know, sports builds confidence and sports, you know, you, you learn a lot of social skills and communication and working with others and teamwork. And that's all true. But I think at a deeper level, it is a sense of when you identify as a human within a context, you become more fully expressed. And that's really important, especially for little kids and, and teenagers really who sort of get into this thing of like, well, who am I? Where do I belong? And I think athletics provides a really safe, supportive atmosphere for that. I think there's also something to be said with like expressing yourself physically within that sport. You know that, you know, number one, you know you love to play. Number two, there's a level of confidence when it comes to playing a sport that you know that you're pretty good at, Mm -hmm. right? And, And you like to show off your talents and then that makes you feel good. And then that makes you more self efficacious. I don't know if that's how how you say that word, but I think it is, (laughs) but your self, your self efficacy levels rise because of that. And then now you're like, wow, this really feels good when I perform well in this context, in this sport. So now, you know, my level of self autonomy that comes with me choosing to do this 
really takes me to that next level. And then that's where my identity is like wrapped up in this sport, which, you know, as you said, there, there are arguments of, you know, how that can be, um, how can that, that affect athletes away from the game? But when you're in it, I think it does provide a really safe, supportive context for people to not only self-identify and be comfortable and fully express, but also to learn other things, to open up your heart and your mind, to learn a lot of other life skills that you can take with you when you do leave the game. So for me, that was a, a, a safe space where I could you know, express myself and be good at, at something. And everyone li- likes to be good at something, right? So <laughs> right. that was- that I felt like that was like my thing and I latched onto that and it was fun. It's fun to swing about. It's fun to kick a ball. It's fun to, you know, skate on ice. So, you know, in my opinion, there's nothing like sports, you know, there's nothing like the competition. There's nothing like the drive that you experience, the, the determination that you have, the, um, you know, the, the will to push a little bit further because the human body is so magnificent, I guess, in that regard, because, Sports, I think, does push you physically and mentally, and you learn a lot from being uncomfortable. And then once you get comfortable with the uncomfortable, you thrive. So that's how I feel about sports. That's how I feel about self-identifying within that space. And it can be a really good thing for a lot of people. Sure. And to close the loop on this part of the conversation, I'd be curious to get your thoughts, maybe through your studies, through your personal experiences, or even now coaching and just observing from that level. When we talk about the confidence and the fun that you can have playing sports and how that can carry over into education or into other areas of your life, is that something that you see like there's a direct correlation there that like if you build that confidence on the field, it can directly carry over? Or is that again, maybe something that we need to focus a little bit more on and have more conversations around how do we channel that energy and that positive momentum from the athletics and bring it over into those other areas of life? Sure. Um, I think you can make an argument either way. There's a whole study in behind motivation that looks at like interest and curiosity and how that develops into like a passion and, and why you continue to do what, whatever you do. I think the biggest argument for carrying it over, carrying the confidence and competence from sports, carrying that over into the academic realm, uh, the biggest argument for that is that it does, I think sports sets up a really great structure for like time management and discipline and sticking with something until you learn it and get better. Definitely a strong correlation in that regard. And on the other hand, like, I don't know, that's a really good question. I mean, sports is fun, right? And I mean, a lot of people probably think school is fun too, but it's a different sort of game that you're playing. You know, on the field, you're playing a game of of numbers and skill. In the classroom, you're sort of playing a game with your mind and how, like, what intelligence and knowledge can you gain from this experience? I'm not one to criticize the academic world when it comes to trying to close that gap, but... At the same time, I think people who learn through physicality are visual learners. I think that learning can be, I guess, more individualized in that way. But again, that's really hard too, right? Because now you're you're talking about teachers who are teaching classrooms of 25 kids. Can that even really happen? I don't know. But I think different forms of education could be 
experimented with in order for that to carry over. However, if you're just looking at at it from like a structural standpoint um, and a curiosity and interest standpoint, I think a lot of that same, those same skills and characteristics do transfer over. Um, And for me, I wanted to go back to school because I was interested in what makes leaders effective and how can leaders in the sports world be more effective? Because, you know, a lot of the times, well, I shouldn't say a lot of the times, sometimes you find coaches who are still like the old school mentality of kind of like fear and discipline in coaching where now you're kind of seeing a, the transition to like a emotionally intelligent coaches as leaders, um, which I kind of fall more in that camp. I'm more of like a, holistic coach rather than lead with like an iron fist. Um, I don't think that works. <laughs> that's my personal opinion. So that's why I wanted to go back to school because I was curious and interested in how I can, what I can learn from a clinical standpoint and implement that on the sports field. So I think in that way, sports set me up for a structure where I could manage my time, be curious, be disciplined in the choices that I make. And you know, my, my dad always said, once you start something, you don't quit until the season is over. It's the same with school. Once you start something, you don't quit until, you know, you have reached your goal. And my mom always said, you know, school is a confidence sport. Testing is a confidence sport because she, you know, obviously she knows I'm an athlete and that's how I bridge the gap between academics and school. So that's why I started school because I wanted to know more, but also I stay in school and I persist because of sports because of the discipline I have learned and the time management that I have learned from athletics. Yeah. Super interesting. And a lot of different parallels that can just overlap and help you out in so many different areas. So I want to go back to a little bit, highlight you a little bit more specifically. Talk to us uh, when you knew you had an opportunity to go to college. Like when did that flip switch in your mind? Well, I think from a young age, kids are asked all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always wanted to be a soccer player. I was a soccer player before I played college softball, mainly. You know, I played softball growing up, but soccer was like my main sport. So from the time I was little, you know, I wanted to be Mia Hamm and Brandi Chastain and like those women on the 1994 Olympic team. I think it was 94. It might have been 96. doesn't matter. Those are like my heroes. I wanted to be them. And I knew that I wanted to keep playing. Um, and I knew I wanted to go to college from a really young age, like probably 10 years old was when I really realized that's what I wanted to do. And so I worked really hard. And my dad knew that this was a dream of mine. So in middle school, you know, we, we started to look at teams that could expose me to college coaches in the soccer world. So, you know, I was on the travel soccer teams and did this and traveled there and went to nationals and really went all over the country to try and get recognized as a soccer player. And, um, and I did eventually, (laughs) I got offered a a spot at Seton hall actually to play soccer and sort of at the 11th hour, I realized, you know, I was a little burnt out from playing that sport and the fun hadn't been taken away from softball yet. So I decided to walk onto the softball team and it ended up working out and I got a scholarship and I started and then it was a happily ever after. Um, but, you know, going back to your original question, from a very young age, I, I, all I wanted to do was play. Very interesting. So your whole recruiting process was mostly centered around soccer 
And then, like I said, at the 11th hour, you can switch over to softball. I'm always amazed. I'm always impressed that you can do something like that. Like the people, like I always think about Patrick Corbin, who played baseball in Syracuse with me, and he picked up a baseball for the first time. I think we were in 10th grade, and he just won a World Series. He's making a buttload of money in the major leagues pitching. And it's like, I've been playing since I was five, and I didn't even come close (laughs) To sniffing that and I've had so many folks that I brought onto this podcast even where they just said something similar to you like I had a, a girl who she played basketball undergrad and then swam for her graduate degree mm-hmm. and just yeah real casual so I'm always impressed and I think that's really cool so play softball what was that experience just I mean obviously it sounds like it was a good one you got an opportunity to play and you got a scholarship Free education is always a good thing, but from a maybe more of a cultural standpoint or what you've learned that, again, may be of interest to you more so now than it used to be then, what was that experience like going through playing Division One college? Well, honestly, my college experience, although it was great and I have no regrets whatsoever, it was trying. There was a lot of adversity that we had to overcome, and it a new culture that we had to build if we wanted to be successful. So I went through a coaching change my, um, my sophomore year of college. And, you know, any sort of leadership change is always going to be tumultuous. Always. Because now you have a new person. You're unfamiliar with them. You don't really know what their expectations are. And then they lay out their expectations and you're like, well, I didn't have to do this last year. So there's kind of like a resistance, right? Right, right. That was a really amazing experience because the coach that came in, I thought, she, you know, looking back, she did a great job in setting her expectations, sticking to what she said she was going to do and persisted. And she never gave up on us, not once. You know, although there were times where we probably pushed back on her and resisted her she never gave up because she knew that this was her job was to change the culture and that year my sophomore year we went to our conference tournament and that was when the big east was still you know louisville and syracuse and notre dame so it was a pretty tough conference so that was the first time we went to our conference tournament in like seven years and then our my, my senior year, which was like the best year in the entire world, we made it to our, our championship game of the conference tournament, which hadn't happened in a de- in a decade. So I think that's pretty impressive. I think we learned through that process what adversity is, how to handle it, how to communicate with each other um, as teammates, how to communicate with adults, meaning the coaching staff how to sort of like police ourselves and build buy-in and actually build a culture of trust, accountability, and unity, right? Uh, we, we sort of gathered around this idea of it doesn't matter what had happened in the past. We just want to win. Like, we just want to win. We just want to win. Why not us, right? We worked really hard and we didn't take – any BS from any of our teammates anymore. And we did really well, really, really well. And you know what? We loved each other. We, that was the closest team that I've ever been on. And they're still my best friends to this day. They will be at my wedding. 
when I look back on that experience, I'm so grateful for that because it taught me so many lessons of communication and teamwork and what real vulnerability can do to a team and built in um, bringing people closer together and building a culture of trust and behavior that is conducive to a winning attitude. 30 second break to talk about my sponsor, Sweat with Scott. What a great sponsor she is. She's been with Pod since day one and we love having her support. Sweat with Stods offers a number of different options to get you on a path to improve your fitness future. Everything from fitness, nutrition, and simple healthy habits. So what are you waiting for? Head over to sweatwithstods.com right now. And when you buy a program, enter the code DYNAMIC at checkout to receive a discount for being a loyal podcast listener. Now back to the show. Before we get to the juicy leadership talk, I want to <laughs> I want to get your vantage point of what things have been like now from the coaching perspective. Now that you've actually gotten to be a coach at a Division One softball program and seen things from the other side, has it changed your opinion on some of these things? Or just give us the scope as to what that experience has been like. Sure. Coaching was a lot different than I thought it was going to be going into it. Just probably like most things are, right? I didn't sure. really know what college athletics was going to be like until I was a player. You know, there's a lot of like planning that goes into practices and planning that goes into building leadership and culture and, you know, kind of driving behaviors and attitudes that you'd like to see from your players and kind of scaffolding that out so you can build a foundation. And as they learn, you kind of like take that foundation away. Right. And that's, that's what you want is for them to be able to have the capacity to do it on their own. And that takes so much work and it doesn't just take six months. It doesn't just take a year. It takes a, it takes a few years to build because you need to build buy-in and you need to build a team of, you know, new people that, come into a culture that is established and has those ideals and values. So being on the coaching end, it's really important for me to like structure out what that looks like for our players and have conversations about, you know, what holding each other accountable means. What does vulnerable leadership mean? Putting the choice in their hands sometimes. So, you know, at practice, would you like to work on this today or would you like to work on this? So they feel like they have ownership over their own development. And I think that's really important in leadership is you have to give people the option to develop themselves because at the end of the day, you are not forcing behavior. You're trying to shape and guide behavior. And it's the individual's responsibility to either absorb that information and do the self work or not. Right. So as a coach, I think it's important to structure those conversations, to have meetings, to give choice to your players, to create a space where your players feel safe to fail so that they can learn how to overcome it next time. So they can learn resilience and to to never give up, because at the end of the day, that's the great thing about athletics is that the consequences are so low and insignificant that you can fail massively and nothing bad is going to happen to you. (laughs) Nothing bad is going to happen. At the end of the day, you're going to wake up, you have people that love you and you're going to have food on your plate. 
Mm-hmm. Nothing traumatic is going to happen. And that's the beautiful thing about sports is that in the moment, I know for players, sometimes it feels like the end of the world. But as coaches, it's our job to, yes, push the players to win and teach them what the will to win is, but also provide a space where it's okay. It's okay to fail. You are not bad. Let's see what, what we could have done better next time and just fix it. And it's all going to be okay. So I think that's the biggest job as a coach is to, you know, not only teach the skills, but also like skills of the game. I mean, but also provide the space to learn lessons with really low risk. Yeah. I think that's awesome perspective to bring to the conversation. And it's not just a sports unique thing. I think anywhere you can get caught up in it. I remember working at a restaurant, pretty popular wing joint. And we used to joke that we're serving wings, not saving lives because <laughs> sometimes you get a little caught up and it's just a natural inclination to happen. But I love how you're able now as a coach and having gone through it as a player before, just having that experience and being able to bring that perspective while in the moment it could be really difficult. I think once you get away from it for a little bit, even if it's the next day, you got to sleep on it, a tough loss, did something wrong, whatever it may be, didn't execute and just be able to come back fresh. Cause like you said, people still love you. You're going to have food on your plate. The sun will come up, things move on. So, all right, let's talk a little bit. I want to dive a little bit deeper and a little bit more specifically into your education, your studies and what you're trying to center all of your work around. And I know one of the big areas of focus for you is specifically with coaches. Let's start there. Let's talk about why that's important to you and what direction or what path you've gone down so far. The reason why I think coaching is so important when it comes to um, effective leaders is because I think a coach can make or break your experience as a young athlete. And that's terrible, right? Like if a coach of a sport ruins your experience in athletics, that is not the point of athletics, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And I've heard so many stories of kids and even adults to this day who like recant these stories. Like it's a traumatic experience and it is a tra- it is a traumatic experience of coaches that have, you know, said really unkind things and ruled with fear and not with empathy and sort of like diminished their confidence and not just in the sport, but you know, when you're little, you can't, you can't differentiate between personal and not personal. So everything is personal Mm -hmm. and hearing hearing that you know coaches have that much power over a child's experience is just not okay with me so because of that uh, I've sort of dived into this realm of effective coach leadership and what that looks like which you know has brought me into the whole like emotionally intelligent leadership realm Um, so that's sort of what like I focus on and then apply that to coaches and what that looks like but yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that if sports is supposed to be this great thing where kids learn a lot of life lessons and skills, well, then that's exactly what it should be. And coaches, I don't think coaches should have that much power over the experience of or the poor experience for kids because that is not the purpose of athletics. The purpose of athletics is to have fun, number one is to learn a lot of things in teamwork, communication, hard work, et cetera, and 
to have a, a safe space to fail and like meet new people and learn things and have confidence, like build confidence instead of being taken away. Sure. Yeah. And that's a great point. So the coaches are going to have that power, right? And maybe power is not the right word, but just for the purpose of our conversation. I suppose. Sure. Yeah. So they're going to have that no matter what. So why don't we try to, to your point, make it a positive experience for as many of the student athletes, or if it's younger levels, just straight up kids have as many positive experiences as we can have and try to eliminate as many of the negative experiences. So can you differentiate for the listening audience what leading through fear versus leading with emotional intelligence for coaches is? Sure. So leading with fear is based in leading from a place of self-doubt and self-shame. So, and and this goes for for anybody, but if, if you're leading from fear, you are projecting your own insecurities onto other people, whether it be eight-year-old kids or 21-year-old professional athletes, doesn't matter. But when you are leading with fear, that is what's happening. You see something that you are triggered by and you are afraid that if your team loses, then you're just going to spiral into this shame cycle and you're going to feel bad about yourself. You think people are going to talk about you, that you're a bad coach and but from leading with fear you're trying to control other people's perception of you which is literally impossible whereas leading with emotional intelligence or being an empathetic leader is moving with your fear and opening up the space and opening up your heart to understand that people are human and they're going to make mistakes and it's okay to fail. It's just, what can we learn from these failures so we can do it better next time? And I think it's a much more healthy way to look at the world because you're going to mess up as a human a lot. And people are going to say things all the time, no matter what you do. So I think leading with empathy is building the capacity in other people to understand that failing is part of the human experience and that it's okay and the world's not going to end and your confidence. And that's, that's um, how we get into to teaching, teaching resilience as well is understanding that the outcome is not the be all end all. The outcome rarely matters. It's about the process and focusing on what is next in order to see results and get better. And, that is empathetic leadership is opening up the space to understand that the outcome you can't control. So it really doesn't matter anyway. So let's, let's look at the things that we can control and learn from what didn't work so we can make it better next time. And let's just keep working at it and have fun in the process. And I think that that builds little kids confidence and without saying the word resilience, which is a really big word, they understand how to be resilient. I want to try to bring some practicality into the conversation. If you have a coach, any leader, really, it doesn't need to be an athletic coach. It can be a teacher. It can be a police officer. If you have somebody that's listening to this conversation right now, and maybe they've already identified that their leadership style isn't working, whether it's because they're leading from fear or a number of various different reasons, 
but they want to try and give the emotional intelligence path. They want to see if that'll work for them, but they're not exactly sure how to do that. How do you teach somebody emotional intelligence? I think, I think obviously we're all human beings, so we do have emotions. That's an innate part of who we are, but being able to teach somebody to use that in a positive way and in a way that leads and teaches and all those good things. How, how do we do that? That's a really, really good question because people throw out the word like emotional intelligence all the time. And it's like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> but I think that, and I used to be this kind of leader too. And I used to say things all the time and like, just talk like this and just say like, you're, you're not doing this. Like, let's do this better than that. And I was always given the feedback. It's not what you're saying. It's how you're saying it. And I was like, what does that mean? I don't know how I'm saying anything. I don't understand how that's offending anyone. But, you know, as I got older, not that I'm that old, but <laughs> I learned um, that the way I was speaking to people wasn't, they weren't hearing me because of the tone of voice I was speaking in. And so I, I learned how to like tone that down, but also understanding where your voice, where your feelings are coming from, right? So if I'm angry, if I'm angry at, at something, a mistake my, my player did, is it because I'm angry at them? Is it because I, is it because I'm, I think that they're a bad player and I'm upset that they messed up or is it because, or can I communicate I'm frustrated because I've told you to make this correction 10 times and it doesn't appear to me that you are trying to make the correction. Can we have a conversation about this? Is it that you are not understanding what I'm saying or is it that you're not putting in the effort to try? So like, how can I say it differently and how can, how can we, we, we work around this? I think the biggest thing is sort of getting to the, the root of your emotions Brene Brown, who is, she, she does research on um, vulnerability and shame mainly, but she talks about how humans can really, most humans can really only identify like three or four emotions, anger, happiness, sadness, I think like fr frustration or something like that. But in reality, there are like 36 identifiable emotions that people typically don't like, don't know how to identify. So I think that's the first step is like trying to understand where your feelings are coming from. And that is rooted in kind of sitting with your feeling for like a hot second, noticing what your body is doing. So for instance, there's like a pit in my stomach or my chest is feeling heavy or my face is feeling hot. Okay. So if I understand these sensations, then what is that? What does that mean? Like, what, what am I attaching that emotion to do? So I think understanding that can bring a sense of clarity to the individual so that then they are able to better communicate how they are feeling or why they reacted in the way that, that they did. And once we can do that, then we move away from reactivity into responding. Um, and responding is always a better option because you're just, you're, you're more clear on, on what you want to say and what you want to communicate to the, to your people. I want to talk, you've mentioned it a couple times here, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about how we do this as well. 
So getting away now from coaches and moving back towards the players. And you talked about the importance, I think just from a cultural perspective and probably just from a sustainability and from a functional perspective, if you can have a team that you said police themselves, that they can do the work on their own, basically player led teams, right? That's what I think is the ultimate goal. All coaches, I think, would be the first to say that if they have player-led teams, their jobs are infinitely easier. <laughs> and they so and you know that's where the distinction of coaches have so much work on their plate. I mean, just from we're talking about a lot of it from the the leadership standpoint, but we're not even talking about the behind the scenes, the administrative yeah. work, the recruiting work at the college level, and all of those different the community aspect of it all. So. I'd love to hear from, again, your experiences and just from your studies about player-led teams and why that's so important. And again, maybe throw some practicality into it. How can we get our teams to this point? Because you said, and I totally agree, so I'll end on this, those type of changes, those big cultural changes, they do not happen overnight. They don't happen usually in one year. They take years to really actually build that strong foundation. So. I'll give you back the floor, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's hard. I think it's hard. I think it's different for the kind of team that you have. Um, but I suppose it's really important to start with making it a priority to have these team conversations, um, so that you can teach your team or bring in bring in a professional right to teach your team what leadership is how what and 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 then like break apart what aspects go into leadership right so like what is good communication what does that look like how can we have hard conversations let's practice let's role play what does vulnerability look like that in in a way that you don't lose your authority because i think that's important right sure um and you know all these aspects of of leadership what does trust look like how do we build trust is built is trust built in really big moments or are they, or is it built in really small moments? What do these small moments look like? I think breaking that down and making it a priority to have these whole team conversations and then engage the players in those conversations. So the coaches or the professional, whoever it may be, you know, is the guide and leads these discussions and asks pertinent questions so that the players themselves can be engaged because once the players are engaged and they take ownership of their own learning, then it's easier for them to implement. So that's the other piece of it too, is the implementation. It's like, well, we can have all these conversations until we're blue in the face, but <laughs> how, how do we implement what we have learned so that we can start seeing progress and results? So I think that, I mean, for me and what I have learned and experienced is making it a priority to have those team meetings and have those discussions and bring in professionals and bring in, you know, people that have clout or information that they can, you know, give and part. Then the coaching staff, the players, they can take the bits and pieces that work and then we can puzzle them together so that it's easier for the players to implement and it's easier for the players to have those conversations between them. So again, you can take away the scaffold and eventually it's just the team culture and that's just the way that, that they conduct themselves. So I know this may be a little bit difficult to narrow down to one aspect, but I'm just curious through 
your studies and through your experience, if you had to pick maybe one area of need or an area that needs to be addressed more commonly than others, what would you say is that maybe that first step for somebody that thinks there may be a culture problem or thinks there may be a leadership problem where maybe you can help them identify without actually having to do any kind of consulting with them or something like that? Sure. I think the biggest thing, period, is the self-awareness and the accountability, I would say. Um, And accountability, again, is one of those words that it's like, what does that even mean? But I think that if whoever is listening out there, I think that if you have people or if you have players or employees that lack a little bit of self-awareness in their actions, I think we can start there. And um, if, and as a leader, you know, if, if you're giving performance evaluations or even just in passing in conversation, I think it's important in the moment if you see a moment of a lack of self-awareness within whoever you are leading, I think it's important to call that out in a way that is gentle and kind, but laying out the facts instead of bringing in emotion to the conversation and helping them understand that, well, when you do this and say this in this way, when your actions don't match your words, that's why you experience conflict with your employees, or that's why you experience conflict with your teammates. So how can I help you start to see your actions, especially if they're not matching your words? I think self-awareness is really important to hold people accountable. And accountability is a whole separate conversation. But I really think that you can start there, especially with like, you know, right now I'm I'm working with college athletes and from like a brain science perspective, they're still adolescents and, you know, adolescents, there's still that lack of self-awareness that, that you see and of no fault of their own. I just, I I don't know. I I don't know if people have taught them what that looks like or what that is or held them accountable in the past. I have no idea, but I think it's important to teach what self-awareness is and what that looks like and how we can move forward with that understanding. This has been such a informative conversation. I know that <laughs> there's going to be people who listen to this and maybe want to learn more or hear more, whatever it may be. Before we wrap things up here today, Sarah, is there a way that if somebody is listening, they want to get in touch with you? Is there a way that you prefer to touch base with people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have an Instagram account. It's just at Sarah Hayfley, so at my full name. And I have a website, so you can go to the link in my bio, which is such like a influencer thing to say, but <laughs> it is what it is, right? I have a website in my bio that you can go to, to to sort of read more about me and read more about what I do and what I offer. And, you know, you can always message message me on Instagram too. That's probably the best way to get in contact with me. And then on my Instagram is my email, but my email also is sarahhafley at gmail.com. Real easy. So you can contact me that way. If there are any questions, um, if anyone wants to work with me, uh, that's the best way to get in contact. Beautiful. All right. I will make sure that gets into the show notes. And before I let you go today, so the show is called Dynamic Leaders. And again, I know this is one of those questions that may be a little bit difficult to narrow it down to one person, but I do like to give all of my guests an opportunity to shout out somebody who's 
really been an influencer in their life or somebody that has shown really great leadership. Do you have somebody that you'd like to shout out today? Um, I actually have two people. One is Michelle Obama. I think she's amazing. I think she's really great at connecting with people um, of all different backgrounds and schools of thought and ages. And I think it's just like, it's so cool. And I don't know her personally, but from what I see on social media and from her book, and I just think she is just a powerhouse of a leader. Uh, and I, I really respect her. And if I could have dinner with her, totally would. Um, also another amazing emotionally intelligent leader who does an amazing job with her business and leading her people is actually my, my partner, Rachel Turner. I think she's brilliant. I might be a little biased, but I think she's brilliant. I think she's kind. I think she, she knows how to connect with people on a deeper level to help them unlock things that they have wanted to do for a long time and move with their fear into bravery. And she does a really good job of that. So shout out to her. Awesome shout outs. And I was definitely going to say, if you actually knew Michelle Obama, that you should uh, hook me up in some ways and get, (laughs) get me her contact info. So if you have that, if you have that dinner with her someday, just let me know and I'll, maybe I'll tag along. I'll just just bring you along. Yeah. Well, it won't be weird. So (laughs) Well, Sarah, I certainly appreciate you taking time today. Again, like I said, this was a super informative conversation. I'm glad that we were able to get deeper into some of those topics. I know there's a million more out there that we could spend all the time in the world talking about, but I really appreciate you giving your time today and hopping on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation and, you know, maybe we'll we'll do this again sometime. And that wraps up the conversation with Sarah. Thank you again to her for coming on to have that super interesting conversation. I wish we had more time to dive into some of those topics, but I hope the practicality we were able to give for a few of those topics that we talked about will be enough to get you jump started or you can get in touch with Sarah through the show notes. Thank you to my sponsor, Sweat with Stods. Go to www.sweatwithstods today to figure out what she can do for your fitness future tomorrow. And as we close out the 2019 podcasting season, I just want to let you know that we do have some exciting guests lined up for the rest of this year and already for the start of 2020. So this thing's going to keep going. We are going to keep having a ton of fun And I have you primarily, my listeners, to thank for the motivation to keep going and for the support to keep doing this. Please tune in for the next episode, like they used to say on the Batman series, same bat time, same bat station. 